Want to get your hands on some boxes and line socks? Very, very easy to do. Tell us a little about yourself and our survey, and we'll send you a pair for free. Just go to custom.sockclub.com slash IEX. You won't regret it. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines, and we have two guests today. Go, John. Welcome, welcome to Boxes and Lines. God bless you, Ronan Ryan. Oh, Christ. I don't know. May the, the road rise up to meet you. <laughs> First guest is uh, our very own Tim Baker from IEX Cloud, and we also have the CEO and co-founder of OpenFin, Mazi Dar. Welcome, guys. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So, Tim, I'm going to go to you first and then our external guest who might be more important after. So, no offense, Tim, but uh, IEX Cloud. People might not have heard of IEX Cloud before. We have a lot of people in our uh, trading industry listen to this podcast, but many outside of it. So, would you mind explaining what IEX Cloud is, please? Sure. IEX Cloud is it's, it's actually one of three new businesses that have come out of IEX Group and funded by the overall business. It's quite distinct from the exchange. Started early 2019, and the mission was to improve access to data for market participants. The data is delivered through a high-performance API uh, and was initially targeted at individual software developers and the more tech-savvy individual investors. But actually, we've, we've started to pick up some enterprises We've got fintech customers now seeking alpha as a customer of ours. And uh, I joined back in February this year. We had about 50,000 registered users and we're up to about 110,000 users now. So we're growing pretty fast. And now we're looking to expand our footprint into the institutional market and, uh, and go where I think there's quite big pockets of underserved uh, users in the buy side, the sell side and beyond. So that's pretty much what we're doing. Where, where, did you, where did you come to us from, Tim? So that's, I think, a, that's a loaded question. Yeah. I mean, professionally, professionally, Tim. Well, I've kind of, depends how far you want to go back. But more, most recently, I was at Refinitiv, which was uh, originally part of Thomson Reuters. So I was running innovation. I was running some businesses. And uh, latterly, I set up Refinitiv Labs, which was a lot of fun. And before that, I was an MD at uh, UBS doing sell-side research and I was running some technology and, and also investing in some fintech stocks. And so I kind of got the, the whole kind of fintech startup thing back in, in UBS. And that, I know Marzi was at uh, UBS for a period. We, we worked in different departments. I was in equities. And then before that, I was in Mexico doing equity research as well. So had a lot nice. of fun in the 90s in Mexico. I'm going to have to start boning up on my uh, British accent just to kind of compare it to... Yeah, oh, God. It'll be equally yeah. as bad. Uh, before we go on to Mozzie, <laughs> one last question for Tim. Is it, is it true, the rumors, that you used to live in the same apartment building as Tears for Fears? Not the same apartment building, but I, we, I went to college in Bath, and the band used to rehearse in the house next door. Nice. And this was before they made it big? before they made it big and Roland's mother worked in boots. So nice. um, yeah, they were just breaking. That was in the eighties. Very good. Very good. Mazi, now, now you got something big to follow. So that's going to be hard to top. <laughs> so once again, Mazi is the co-founder and CEO of OpenFin. And I thought what would be good first, Mazi, is explain for the listeners what OpenFin is. And then maybe um, we could talk about why are you and Tim on this podcast with John and I today? Yeah, sounds great. So first of all, thanks for having me. 
You can think of OpenFin as iOS for financial desktops. We have a dual mission. The first is to modernize the desktop experience. So think of that as uh, making the desktop experience as delightful as the phone experience. Uh, apps that are simple and intuitive and, and delightful. So basically all of the things that financial desktops typically have not been. The second part of the mission is to democratize uh, app distribution and to make it super simple for uh, any developer, whether inside an organization or delivering to a customer, uh, to easily deploy their app to their customer's desktop. So we got started back in 2010. We've licensed the, the product now to 25 big banks, 25 big buy-side firms, over 50 vendors that range from the very large to the emerging fintechs. Uh, the software is being used in 1,500 banks and buy-side firms today uh, across uh, 250,000 desktops. Uh, so it's been, a, it's been a fun ride, and, uh, and we're excited to, to be working with IEX now. So uh, excited to talk about what we're doing there. Fantastic. So Tim, do you, do you want to touch upon what we're doing and Mazi fill in the blanks? Or Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and I've known Mazi now for probably seven or eight years. So it, it's been really interesting to follow his journey. And of course, I was at Refinitiv at that time. And so it's kind of hard for me to, to work with, with Mazi because Mazi's business is really about kind of changing the landscape for desktop. So I was, you know, as soon as I got here, really understood what we were trying to do at IEX. It was, uh, it was an easy call to put into Marzi and say, you know, let's, let's figure out how we can work together. And what we've come up with, I think, is pretty powerful. So by the time this podcast goes out, we'll have launched a kind of a beta version of uh, our own OpenFin app. We're going to call it the IEX Cloud Gateway. And it's going to leverage the real-time prices that we have coming off the IEX exchange. So for anyone who has a desktop product or if you are managing people on the sell side or the buy side, probably back in 28, 2008, to save money, you took away access to real-time prices. So there's a lot of people sitting in the front, middle, and back office that don't have access to anything but delayed prices, so 15-minute delayed prices. And that was really because of the cost of putting that onto every single, every single application running on your desktop. So we're going to put real-time prices or near real-time prices back onto desktops and we're going to do it free of charge. And by doing it through the OpenFin framework, that means any other apps on, on the OpenFin framework will be able to interoperate with our app. Cool. Yeah, and this is, this is really uh, super exciting. IEX is, is now the first and only app that is uh, offering real-time pricing free of charge. For, for us, this relationship is a really fantastic fit because the thing that we don't do at all is content. We don't distribute data. We don't produce content of any kind. We don't uh, build applications of our own. And we don't do that because we want to be an enabler for the entire industry and make it easy for others to, to build these products and to deploy them easily to their end users. So, so this, this relationship is a perfect fit for us. And we're just really thrilled to be getting going. Well, and I would imagine you have, you've obviously gotten some traction and success, but you've been a bit of a disruptor in your field as well, as we have uh, also. And I'm curious to get your perspectives on the challenges you've faced in whether, you know, going up against uh, larger competitors or incumbents or resistance that you've met in trying to 
bring your products to market and how you've, how you've worked through that? We got going just as, you know, the, the iPhone and the App Store were becoming a thing as uh, significant technology change was starting to happen in the industry. And, but it, you know, it took a number of years for the banks to catch on and for, for them to start really considering building mission-critical applications on top, of, on top of our technology. And you, know, you have innovators in this space, people thinking you know, ahead to what the world will look like in the future. I think Tim is, is one of those people who I've, I've admired for a long time. And then you have others who are sort of you know, incumbents and happy with the current state of affairs. And, and so it's uh, sometimes a struggle to get those folks to uh, adopt new technologies and to think about things in different ways. So that is, uh, that is the, the battle that we were fighting right from the very beginning. And it's been, it's been a you know, uh, bank by bank, vendor by vendor, a buy side firm by buy side firm uh, effort to, 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 to coalesce this many firms onto our platform. Fantastic. Like I, what I'd say, I'm guessing now, but I'd say many of our listeners, uh, this podcast are probably clients of yours, like comp- people who work at companies that use OpenFin. And you touched upon it a little bit. You're on both buy side and sell side desks and sell side I view as big financial institutions. Was that a harder wall to kick down terms of like dealing with like security, just everything in general. Like for, for uh, the reason I ask is, you know, IEX, uh, one benefit is as an exchange, a lot of these financial institutions have to connect to you, whether they like to or not, but it's, it's hard to kick down those walls. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because actually the way I met Tim originally was through Matt Harris from Bain Capital Ventures. Our friend. Um, <laughs> he's, yeah. he's on our board as well. Yeah, yeah, no, Matt's terrific. He yeah. was the first. He was the first person to say to me that, "Look, I like your idea. It's a big idea. It's an investable idea. But if it's going to work, you need to convince the biggest banks in the world to use your product. And going around and convincing, you know, a hundred small firms or vendors to use your product uh, isn't going to get J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs to uh, to use your product. Also, but." The, the, the reverse works. If you get the big banks to use it, everyone else will as well. Absolutely. So we started on that journey really early on back in uh, 2012 when I had that conversation in, with Matt. We immediately started focusing on just that, getting banks to, to be the first to use our product. And, uh, and that's how we got going. Our, our first three big customers were banks. And after we got those customers is when Matt invested in the company. So yeah, you know, the, they have all of the issues that you would imagine. Uh, security, reliability, performance, compliance, and, and, and that forced us pretty early on to be incredibly thoughtful about all of those things as we were designing our product. Uh, so, so I think even though it was, it was a much, much bigger lift to have to do that early on, it, 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 we benefited tremendously from designing things that way up front. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, how things have progressed have... Uh, validates that approach. I see John's itching to ask a question. <laughs> you, you've gotten yeah, you, so used to reading yeah, my facial expression well, and knowing you, you, that you almost have the mic in your eye. Go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I'm just I'm curious because you do have such uh, a number of large firms um, as clients, and those firms obviously have a lot of some common needs, um, but uh, very unique needs as well. Um, how much of your time is spent just uh, trying to? Customize or do you try to idly customize the the way that your system works for particular large users, or you j- just try to make it as 
flexible and adaptable as possible so that as many people can use it in different ways as they want to. Do you do you do a lot of fine tuning for particular clients? Yeah, that's a great question. So thank you. The the the, the I don't know. <laughs> it's decent. Uh, the the short answer is we don't do any customization at all. The 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 way things work is OpenFin OS, you can think of it as an invisible browser that runs on the desktop. So there's no user interface. We expose APIs, interfaces that an app can use. And so imagine that same app that could have run in a web browser now is running, let's say in its own window, but using those APIs, it can behave just like a native installed application. So oh, that means, nice. Yeah, so that means you can minimize the app and have it pop up if there's a real-time alert. You can do push notifications. You can have widgets that sit always on top on the desktop. So you can have all of the experience the end user wants without all of the, the overhead that comes with installing software onto a customer's desktop or on, even on an internal desktop. Um, so the, the model has actually worked really well with big firms because it turns out that uh, almost all of them have all, this, uh, all the exact same issues. And even the uh, kind of what we thought sometimes were obscure requests from some firms, we realized they were just early to ask us for something and that like eventually everybody else needed it. So one example of that is uh, pretty early on, we had some firms saying, well, you know, can you, can you connect up the, the HTML5 app to my, my Flash Flex application that I already built? And at first we thought, well, that's a really stupid idea because the whole point is to get rid of Flash and Flex. So we're <laughs> not trying to connect to it. But then we realized that, well, as an industry, we spent like literally billions of dollars building Flash and Flex apps. And you can't just wish them all away overnight. And so something like creating that bridge and the connector between the new apps and the old apps is actually a critical part of getting this right. So we, we've, we've seen that pattern now. You know, the first person will ask for something and we'll, now we stare at the, the, the ask harder and usually come to the conclusion that no, in fact, this is probably something that most people will need. Um, so that, that model works, has worked really well. We, we are getting now you know, uh, customers who, who uh, want UI from us as well, right? They want a visual interface. And in the past, they had built all those, the, those visual interfaces themselves. And uh, that's, that's a really interesting new, new process for us because you know, if you take you know, the design teams of five different banks, they're going to come up with five different ways of doing the same thing. So, so we're, we're trying to figure out what's common about those and, and, and where we need to allow for customization. But that, that, that's an exciting new part of what we're doing. That's, it's really interesting because uh, as I hear you speaking, and I, and I didn't really know this, I, I'll, I'll shamelessly admit, but, um, you know, back when I worked on the trading floor or even here, desktop real estate is very, very, very important. So having something like even like the IEX app and real-time market data, like Tim and Mazi, that will come up as if the integration will look like it's an app on the desktop, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's incredible. That's right. I learned that live on the podcast, everyone. That's the truth. Because <laughs> <laughs> of, of John's great long-winded question. Mm, well, yeah. <laughs> thank, uh, thank you. Thank you, Ronan. So, 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 little tidbits yeah, of praise he meets out to me. Well, and that, that, that reminds me that you, you and Brad and many of the members of the, of the business came from RBC. Yep. And RBC is a, a, you know, a very big supporter of OpenFit and, and there's some really great case studies. I don't, I don't know whether Marcy, it's worth just explaining how they have adopted the framework and taken in-house apps and third-party apps and essentially created workflows that are very kind of seamless. 
Yeah, that's a terrific story. There's a a woman there named Kim Prado who runs you know, digital and client platforms. And uh, she's incredibly thoughtful about uh, this topic. The, the way she describes their process was that, you know, they started with this, this big monolithic app that, you know, in a way is sort of like the, the, the hallmark of a, the traditional financial app. And they reimagined that app as, you know, in its component parts. So they, they broke it up into smaller pieces and then they, but then they, they pulled it back together through interoperability so that, you know, you could be in, you know, a blotter and click a ticker and have that invoke a chart. And, uh, and that's very much the way that people like to think about things nowadays. You know, sometimes uh, folks use the, the word app, sometimes it's a microservice, but that's a big part of how you get that, that modern experience that, that's lightweight and where, where apps come into the workflow when they're needed. And, and Kim and her team did a lot of work also to bring in, as, as Tim said, uh, third-party applications into the workflow because increasingly banks are realizing that they're not supposed to build everything themselves, that uh, they need to leave a lot of the innovating to folks outside the four walls of their firms. But once they're using an app from IEX or from, from other vendors, that app really needs to be part of their, uh, their end user's workflow. And so they're using OpenFin for that to bring together that end user experience. And, uh, and yeah, that's absolutely a really big success story for us. Fantastic. So now onto a topic that's near and dear to uh, John Ramsey and my heart. I, uh, he called me this morning really early and he goes, morning, Ronan. I'm like, morning, John. He goes, I got two words for you. Right, John? I'm making this up. Financial data. <laughs> <laughs> like you do everything. You're such a liar. What the hell? <laughs> I got two words for you. I'm like, good morning. Okay. No, financial data. <laughs> yeah. <So laughs> yeah, now usually it's a different two words, but yeah. I, I won't repeat those on, uh, for, on, on this podcast. You're in a Thursday uh, good mood. A- ask yeah. your question. It's gonna, this is going to be a good one, guys. Oh, you, you, you think I've got a question about uh, financial about data? Financial data. Yeah. What, what was it? I don't remember now. What are the biggest issues you see with financial data today, both of you? <laughs> oh yeah, that's a that's that's. Ma- just Mazzy like is a just like what, what the hell is going on here? Tim's Tim's like <laughs> it's like being back in the office. <laughs> we we actually sit next to one another. Oh that's, the, that's the scary part. These guys, I poor Mazzy, you have no idea what you're getting into. <laughs> what do you think are the most significant issues involving uh, financial data today? Well, you know about market data. You know about the raging debate over market data. It's wonderful that we're in a position to distribute our data um, for free and real-time data, but that is not. But that's not going to happen anytime soon with the other big exchanges. Do you have any thoughts or views about the debate over over market data and the cost of it, and whether there will be continuing pressure on some of the incumbents to? to come down in their fees or is this just going to be a, a, a constant source of irritation for the industry forever? No, I think, I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. I think the first thing is that, yeah, financial data, market data is a big business. It's a $30 billion business. If you add up all those desktops and all the feeds and that's excluding the technology costs on top of that. And when I did a kind of a bottom up, I, you know, of the five, about five or six big players account for about 75% of that $30 billion. So it's, it's actually, and that's global. So it's a, it's a really concentrated market. And what that means is if you're an independent data provider, those five or six players have kind of locked up the top thousand customers. So it's very hard for a small firm that might have amazing data 
especially if that data competes with data that's kind of bundled by one of those big firms, it's very hard for them to get access to that market. And what that really means is that the choice at the customer end is really limited. So I think that that's it. That, that's one big challenge. I think the other challenge is just that the whole industry is just kind of really arcane. I think partly because those incumbents have not innovated. And I ran innovation at Refinitiv. It was really hard work. No one really wanted to disrupt the, the great business model that they have. And so what that means is that not only do smaller firms not have access, and not only are the prices really high, but there's no drive to kind of innovate and change industry practices. So for example, the way that data is licensed is really kind of backward. You know, the expression data is the new oil. You know, if you think about it, oil is, you know, it's kind of expensive to kind of move around. If it leaks, it's a big problem. Yeah, it's a good analogy. If you, if you buy data from pretty much anywhere and it leaks into another part of the organization, you're going to get a big bill at some point. So I think that the, the way that data kind of flows through the system and, and as it's touched by more and more intermediaries, it kind of gets broken. And actually, the, the issues really start actually at the source. I mean, you know, we love the SEC, but if you want to get financial data from the SEC, you go to Edgar Online and it's kind of, it's like going back to the 80s or 90s. The data is really hard to get to. It's not in a database. It's individual filings. Um, and so sorry, John. I was just, just going to say, uh, Tim, just to, just to interject in terms of uh, getting a big bill, you may get a big bill, and, but you may not anticipate it because the conditions under that may prompt you to get a big bill or may, you know, uh, trigger somebody to say that you owe them a lot may not be entirely transparent. I think there's a lot of concern in the industry about that problem, too. Well, what it means is that everything is so locked down that you end up again with a large population of individuals and systems that don't have access to that data. Uh, and ironically, the data is coming from filings or it's coming from the market. It goes through all these intermediaries. And by the time it comes out the other end, it's owned by someone. And, and actually, if you cancel that license, you have to delete all the history. So you're not, you don't even own the data. You're renting it. So I think, I think data has become a bit more like tar. It really doesn't kind of move around that well. And, and really, it should be more like water. You know, you should be able to just plug it in. You should be able to use it for a shower or to fill the bath or fill, the, fill your pool. And as long as it's kind of metered and you pay for what you use. And if at the end of the day, that data came from a public source, obviously there's expenses in terms of turning that data into something useful. And it's obviously there should be a payment for that. But, you know, to kind of so lock down that data so it doesn't actually get you know, fully leveraged on a fair basis, um, you know, just seems very arcane to me. And I explain the business to people who aren't in the industry and they all go, that sounds crazy. Um, <laughs> and it is a bit crazy. It is. Well, thank you. Thank you, Gubna. Um, oh, trying my hand out. <laughs> Jeez, is this going to be your new party piece now? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying, hey, to, just trying to, for a little, <laughs> bit of, little bit of variety there. Mazi, do you want to, do you, you, you have any thoughts on this topic? Well, well, Tim's the expert. I um I, I love that analogy of the you know tar uh, versus water. I think that it's a great vision. What we hear all the time from cu customers is exactly that. 
you know, it's, it comes in the form of them asking about entitlements, which is, you know, uh, an incredibly complex topic. It turns out, it sounds simple, but once you start asking people about it, you, you re regret it once they explain the, the nightmare that they have to go through to, uh, to deal with entitlements. In my experience, when, when you have customers all complaining about the same thing, and there's inherent uh, belief or there's a belief of inherent unfairness in the way that a uh, given system works, it's just a matter of time before that system gets dis disrupted. So as with all of these things, it's just a matter of time. I think IEX is onto something here. I've got one other example, John, of something that just doesn't make sense to me. Maybe I've got this wrong, but someone explained this to me the other day. So if you're a trader and you have five applications open and they're all using real-time data, then you pay five times for that because it's based on the applications that are running on your desktop. Might well be. And that is kind of the, 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 the standard form of the way that exchanges pay is that they slice and dice based on very specific categories of use. Absolutely right. And if you're in a business that involves a lot of different segments and requires that you use the, the business, uh, the data in a lot of different ways, then you may have an absolute need to use it in, in each of those ways. So, so you're right. You don't purchase once. The topic I wanted to touch upon is near and dear to my heart is entrepreneurship and Mazi, believe it or not, John and I did some homework in preparing for this podcast. It's not at all we, apparent, we, but we, we did do a bit. It, it, we make it not apparent on purpose, right, John? But uh, I was actually listening Absolutely. to a podcast you guys put out on your 10-year anniversary, which congratulations, 10 years Thank is you. amazing. Uh, IEX is on eight years, and trust me, I, I, I know some of the uh, nutness in getting a company off the ground. But uh, I, I particularly found it funny, the conversation about how you guys came up with your name and you were originally Apogee and then oh, that yeah. only lasted like six weeks. It's, it, we, we have so many of those stories. Like I'm looking forward to two years from now getting Brad and I and a few others on a podcast and the, the shit we might say about the last 10 years will be remarkable. But I, I thought I'd ask you as a co-founder, you know, what were the hardest times in the development of your company? I always think about the development of, you know, of, of OpenFin and also, you know, and in my previous life at, at CreditX, uh, really in terms of milestones, the, you know, the, the, the early days when, you know, you sort of hear crickets, right? You've, you know, nobody's interested, nobody cares, nobody even knows what you're doing. And, uh, and that's hard. The silence is really hard, particularly if you've come out of a space where, you know, you were sort of, you know, dealing with people all day long, every day, and it had a million things going on. To go from that to just the utter silence of starting uh, your own thing from scratch is definitely a big struggle. The, the, other, the other recurring theme, I would say, is certainly when you are the CEO of the company and charged with the, the livelihood of everybody you've convinced to come work on that mission, anytime there's a need for a capital raise, you know, stress levels go up. And, uh, you know, I've had multiple occasions where, where I've, I've felt that, that, you know, that pain in my chest for sometimes weeks, you know, working on a capital raise. And that's, that, that's always, that's always hard. But, you know, my co-founder Chuck and I, I think had a lot of conviction from very early on about what we were doing. So, so one thing that we've never doubted was the mission that we were on and the way that we were approaching the product. And, you know, when we tell when we catch up with some of our early investors, sometimes we haven't heard from us in a little bit, 
you know, when we explain what we're doing, they're like, well, that's exactly what you told me in 2010. And, you know, it's like, yeah, that's, you know, we're, we believed it then we continue to believe it now. And we're, you know, we we're working hard at it and it, and it's working. So, so that part of it, which I think is, you know, in entrepreneurship, I think often you have to reconsider what you're doing sometimes based on the market data or sorry, the, the, the data coming back from the market. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so that, that hasn't really uh, happened for us, but, you know, winning all of these customers, you know, has been a real journey for sure. Well, you gave me uh, pains in my chest as you talked about raising money at the beginning. Cause I, I still, Brad and I both say it was sort of the hardest thing that we ever did. And we used to jokingly call the uh, the Fortrain our chapel because we were downtown and most of the firms that invested in IX first round were in Midtown. And on any given day, I might be on the Fortrain going, we are screwed. We are never going to raise money. And he'd be like, no, 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 it's good. And then the next day he's like, what have we done with our careers? And I'd be like, no, it's good. <laughs> and I don't think there was ever a day when we were both like crying on the Fortrain, but like, I can remember coming back to the office and I, and I sympathize with you because you, you, you feel responsibility to the people who, who took the plunge with you. And we, we had this one room office and you'd open up the door and everyone's heads would turn and they're waiting for you to go, we got the money. I felt like a mother bird coming back to the nest and the chicks want to, and most of the time we told them, no, <laughs> we, we did not get anything, but it's a, it's also the remarkable part of uh, starting something too. So still the things that give me the pains in my chest also give us the most pride. Absolutely. Well, I'm always interested in the personal characteristics of people who are willing to take this plunge because it's like Mazisi said, you, you, you know, conviction is one thing, but having the guts to actually do it is an entirely different thing. And I, it requires a, a certain unique set of characteristics, I think, to be particularly if you're in a comfortable job, you know that you're going to, you know, you'll continue to, to, to do well and, and to be comfortable to sort of risk all of that. Was there anything in particular that that pushed you over the edge in terms of saying, I'm just going to I'm just going to take a shot and do it? No, you know, I think there are probably two two important aspects to it that I think is maybe a, a theme for entrepreneurs. The first is that I realized this was in you know early 2010. I. I was making more money than I'd ever made in my life by a significant sum, but I realized that uh, I could not work a normal job and I simply wasn't happy. And so it, it wasn't sort of the, 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 the decision to leave something that I, that I absolutely loved to go to you know, the unknown. It was really more a decision to, to, to stop doing something that wasn't making me happy and get back to uh, what I've always enjoyed, which is innovation and being involved with things early. The other aspect to it is the the not knowing what you're signing yourself up for, which I think is which is an advantage because if you if you knew fully what you're in for, it could help convince you not to do it. Um, I did have the benefit through the experience of at at CreditX for ten years to see that journey, and we, you know it was a roller co- coaster ride that ended up with the sale of the company to ICE. You know, ten days after Lehman collapsed. So I'd been through that roller coaster wow. ride, and I and I, and I had uh, had a fair idea of what I was going to be in for. But you know, I never had to take on that responsibility of the capital raising and you know the the stress that comes with that. So that was all new for me, and I didn't know what, what I was in for fully. And I think that was probably a big advantage. No, definitely, T- Tim. Similar question for you, right? We're a band of merry, crazy assholes trying to attack the exchanges, and you jumped from a big ship where you had a big important job 
to lead a business unit here. How was how how was that decision? How was that move? I obviously think it's going great, uh, Tim. But... <laughs> thank you. That's really, uh, it was a really easy move. Look, I think, you know, I've worked in mainly big companies in my career and I've watched small companies be a lot more agile and innovative. I think IX is a great home for me because luckily I don't have to do what you've had to do, Marcy. I don't have to raise every 18 months, although it feels like it at the moment because we're in the middle of budgeting. So I'm pitching for money, but it's not kind of as stressful um, yeah, you're going to have cha- pains in your chest yeah. soon. And, and it's great to join a, you know, a mission-driven company, but one which has got you know, great entrepreneurs and creative people. And you know, when you start a job, it usually takes two or three months to get into it and kind of figure the place out. It, you know, sometimes it takes a year or two. But IEX, it was like, I think it was actually in the interview process, talking to Brad, I thought, wow, this is like really aligned to the way I think of the world and how I think the world should change. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was, I think it's been a great fit for me. Did, did you talk to Ronan before you took the job? They don't let me talk, talk to, to Ronan. Okay. All right. Well, he, I figured. He might, I, I assumed that had to be the case. He might not have come. Yeah. He's a Manchester city supporter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he should still be happy. That's true. I, I, I like your wife, but I'm going to put you through hell and budget soon. so then our favorite question of all questions we ask every guest and we'll ask to each of our two guests is tell us your favorite wall street movie and why go mazi who wants to go first mazi first okay uh so so i was told i was told that i uh i couldn't go with wall street so i'm gonna can as your second because everybody goes at wall street but it's a great movie (laughs) Mm -hmm. well i'll go to real quick so uh so the first actually is the movie arbitrage with richard Gere, which i don't think a lot of people saw but i thought it's really good yeah but but, i don't think i saw it but i'm gonna see it now and i don't think anybody on the podcast has picked no no one has said it. you get some you get some very special kind of uh, it's on amazon prime like in my suggested list all the time you should watch it john it's a very good movie yeah highly recommend it the, the 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 other movie actually I have a bit of a soft spot for, which wasn't a very good movie, uh, was Wall Street Two. The you know Money Never Sleeps. Uh, the reason I have a soft spot for it is that part of it was filmed in our office at uh, Credit X and Ice, uh, which was the top floor of eight seventy five Third Avenue. So I got a chance to meet Oliver Stone uh, and actually got got interviewed by Shia LaBeouf when he was when he was you know, uh, working on the part he played in that movie so uh so that that was a fun experience but uh sadly not a terrific movie yeah. that's correct well i can imagine i didn't i never heard there was a wall street too it sounds right. like it must have there, been there you go awful. Yeah. yeah no you know what it's funny story is part of uh, was taped on the rbc trading floor as well but it was done on a sunday uh, i i actually proud of myself that i did not do it but i was considering going in and everybody well not everybody but a lot of people piled into the trading floor and seemingly they were there all day and there's just one part where five seconds and everybody's sort of blurred in the background. You couldn't make out a soul. Uh, so not only was it a fairly shit movie, but like <laughs> no, no, no one really got any kind of cameo that they expected. Yeah. Tim, what about you? So my, I, I, yeah, because I listened to the podcast. I knew this was coming up. So I was determined not to do one that had been done before. So, so I, I'm going for Rogue Trader. Yes. I was hoping you would do that with the Barings Bank British connection. So that, was, that, was, that was 20 years ago that Barings went yep. past. And, you know, the, the big takeaway from that for, for me as, as a trader or an investor is, is never chase your losses. 
And, yes. and it meant a lot to me because when I was in Mexico, my first job in Mexico was working for a Mexican stockbroker. And we had a trader and I, and it turned out he was a Nick Leeson type trader and he busted, he busted the bank. It was, it was um, a horrible thing to go through. You know, it happens periodically, uh, but it's a good movie. It's got, it's got yeah. uh, Ewan McGregor plays Nick Leeson. It's in Singapore, which is one of my favorite places. So yeah, it's, it's worth a watch. I think it's free on YouTube as well. So you don't have to- yeah. Actually, it's one of those movies I have in my DVD collection because it's interesting how someone can take down a storied bank. Like, I mean, Barings was a couple of hundred years old or something like that. And right under the noses, he tucked them down. But now what he does is after he served his prison time is he actually consults with companies on how to spot this type of fraud, which is just pretty ironic. I guess it's the same thing, right? The Wolf of Wall Street. What's his name? Jordan Belfort. I think now he... uh, Get some money to do speeches on. on yeah, and the, on and the guy the right who was yeah. the guy who was behind Catch Me If You Can. Oh I, yeah, I, yeah. I think then he yeah. he like turned into it, started like teaching FBI agents how to catch people like him. There we go. Well, well done, fellas. We got two movies yeah. that were never mentioned before, and two two good movies in my opinion. Actually, I, Tim, I was hoping you'd say Rogue Trader. <laughs> I almost said Barry Hoppins, but I think someone's said Barry Hoppins, <laughs> right? Because he was a banker, wasn't he? The father was a banker. So. That's true. You could say that. He was in the Bank of England, right? Yeah. Very yeah. nice. And then, uh, Tim, you already have a few pairs of IEX Yeah, socks, I was going to say, you're going to offer him some socks. He's sitting there thinking, yeah. I got all the Look fucking socks. Oh, I can wow. <laughs> there you go. Look at yeah. that. But, but Mozzie, okay. uh, you, you might be shocked by the socks you just saw on the screen. But your very own pair will be on the way. We promise. Fantastic. Yeah. And you, when asked, when someone goes, Jesus, those are colorful, you can tell them you are on IEX's podcast, Boxes and Lines. And that's what the socks are about. Awesome. <laughs> well, anyway, listen, we, we try to keep these podcasts relatively short. And John and I are obviously pleased to have Tim on finally. It's been a great addition to the IEX family. But Mozzie, we, we really appreciate it. We, we, are, we have soft spots for founders because we know what you've gone through. Congratulations on your success. You got a voice for podcasts, my man. You sound great. You have your own podcast as well. And we can see as we tape this, you're in your own podcast booth with like a spit guard in front of the microphone. Very, very fancy. Uh, Yeah, frankly, he's got much better equipment than we do. That's true. We we, we have a podcast booth envy. But um, let let us ask you, if if you wouldn't mind, tell the listeners the name of your podcast, how they can find it. Yeah, it's called the Open Fin MVP Podcast, and it's produced by John Syracuse, who, who produced the podcast booth in our office, and he has his own show, uh, the Bank On It Podcast. So uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it's a lot of fun to do. Your show is more fun than ours, though, so I'm going to have to take a look at our lineup and, and how we approach it. I'm taking yeah. notes. We didn't even drink today. John, anything you want to say on the way out? This should be and good. Nothing, nothing much, just to thank our guests. They've added some class. So a wee bit of class to our little podcast. It's really been fun. Over and out. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.